Amen. You may be seated. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 and extending to verse 19. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained. The waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth, and then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, and he took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from all the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, having heard this marvelous passage of redemption, seeing Within it, the echoes of creation, seeing within it the blessings of your kindness that comes to us, undeserved as they are, we receive them. It reminds us of your heart as we read this passage. Because it's teeming with hope, even as it's teeming with life. It's now pouring forth from the ark to go into the world to see that world recreated. 
The Lord gives us a picture of what it is we can anticipate when that greater son of Noah, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes and when he comes to bring forth a kind of recreation of the world that will be so much better than this one that we just read. And he will indeed usher us in to the new heavens and the new earth. And he will be to us that final Adam. Oh Lord, we long for that day. Even now as it's underway through the power of the Spirit and the application of the gospel. And we would pray that that kingdom mission would advance even more right now as we sit under your word. Let your word come forth with such power that its penetrating truth would be inescapable to every mind and heart in this room. That we might be remade for the purpose of seeing the glory of Jesus in all things, everywhere. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to be back with you. I missed being with you last week. I was with a few dear friends actually skiing in Winter Park, Colorado. A great time with those dear brothers. We had Church on the Mountain together uh, last week, which was incredible. But I missed sitting, sitting under our dear brother um, Brian Phillips' message on the flood. And so I was, I was able to hear it by podcast this week and just have it wash over me, no pun intended. Um, take it in. It was so rich. So grateful for his ministry and service among us. Makes me so thankful for our elders have a brother like that stand up and serve us in that way. Such an enriching moment. And I couldn't help, though. I did have a, a recollection. So I'm listening to this flood, and I'm thinking of Noah and the ark and hearing these wonderful truths that Brian's telling us from the Word. I begin to think back of when we were having our first child, Rosalind. We found out we were expecting Rosalind in 2003. She's 14 today. She's not in this room, so I can talk about her. She's 14. She's actually on her way to Mississippi right now. As, as we were getting ready for her birth, we would, we'd go in those baby stores. You know what I'm talking about? The ones where when you walk in the door, there's a sucking sound. It's going to take all the money out of your wallet when you walk in this room. Because you as a, a, a first-time parent, you got to have everything. And you got to have the best of everything because it's your child. Now, that'll change if you have other children. But that's how you feel going in the first time. And I just remember looking. You know how you look at the bedding. The bedding is so important. The pillows, the sheets, the baby bumper, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just such a big deal. Seems funny now, a little removed from it. What's shocking to me is that when you begin to, it doesn't matter what store, it doesn't have to be a Christian store, it can be any store. One of the leading themes is Noah and the ark. Now, I want you to wrap your head around this. The greatest Old Testament judgment <laughs> is the primary decorating theme for your firstborn child. You know what? Is this trying to be prophetic here over this child by, you know, creating this? I mean, this is, you know, you paint the picture. This is like, you know, Noah with his wife. 
and his sons and their wives. I mean, we've got mother-in-law, daughter-in-law together in the boat for a year. This is bad. We're not even talking about the animals yet. We're just talking about the human beings on that boat. You've got a raging storm of wind and waves, all those things, and you're like, that'll make a beautiful bumper for our baby bed. <laughs> make a beautiful bumper for our baby bed. It's unusual. It's very unusual. It's more like, as Gustav Dore put it in his 1866 illustrated picture Bible, which we had a facsimile of when I was uh, growing up. And it's actually, a, it's, it's wonderful. The art is wonderful. I commend it to you. It's a little frightening for children. I think that's what it was originally intended for. He has a, he has a, a steel engraving in there called the Deluge. It's a horrifying picture of what's taking place in the judgment of the Lord, in the flood. It's a picture of a family that's huddled on top of a rock. And right next to them is a tiger with a tiger cub in its mouth. It's, it's animal and beast doing their best to survive. As waves are crashing up around them. And you've got these haunting like birds wearyingly over the waters. Searching for places from which to light. The children are crying. The parents are slipping down the rock into the current. They're to lose contact with their children. And as you look in the water, all you see are appendages coming out. Hands and feet. That's closer to the vision than the cuddly figures on the baby bumper that we tend to decorate the nursery with. That's a closer picture to what's going on with regards to the judgment of this particular scene that we've just come through and are now seeing the very end of. What's remarkable is that this story of judgment, this story of incredible darkness based on the, the grievousness of men's sin. You'll remember back in Genesis chapter 6, man's heart was described as evil being the intention of the thought of his heart continually. That was the nature of humanity at the point of the flood. And God here, through his judgment, is wiping the slate clean. Except for one family. Noah, his wife, his sons and their wives, and the, and the animals, the remnant of the animals that were brought on the ark. As you come through that in chapter 7, the horrifying picture that we looked at last week together, you see what becomes the grace of the flood. We saw the judgment of the flood. Now, in a very real sense, we're seeing the glorious grace of the flood because here we're seeing the saving power of God and the hope of the future after devastating judgment from the Lord. Only one person survives the judgment of the Lord. Only one family survives the judgment of the Lord, and it's, it's Noah. And the Lord has plans for Noah. And he wants to tell his story through Noah. He wants to show his power through Noah. He wants the unfolding of redemption to come through Noah. Every single person in human history arises out of the DNA of the Noahic family. They're all that's left. All of us are just... Extended family of Noah. The question would be, do we also have the faith of Noah? We have his genes somewhere way long ago, running and pulsating through our blood. But do we have the faith of Noah? The spiritual genes. 
of the trust of a God who can bring you through the judgment to safe passage on the other side. As we look at this passage, we really want to look at it in three ways this morning. And we want to see God's character. And we want to see God's power in redemption as we look at this this section from Genesis chapter 8 together. We want to see first that God remembers. We want to see second that God rescues. And we want to see thirdly that God recreates. God remembers, God rescues, and God recreates. You notice from the title of the message, we're talking about the recreation of the world. And I think that you'll see very intentionally in the writing of Moses, as God is speaking through Moses, as he writes the book of Genesis, he is giving to us a retelling of the creation story post-flood. That's what he's doing here in Genesis chapter 8. And you'll see the echoes of it all over the place as we work our way through this passage together. But let's start with this God remembers. That's right at the very beginning of our text. Genesis chapter 8 verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now when you hear that God remembered Noah, what is it that comes to your mind? Do do you begin to think, well... God here had a moment of mental recall. God is recollecting. It's a good thing just in time. Noah's been in that heart for a while. It's a good thing. He was right busy with something else, and then he went, Noah. And he, you know, right? That's how we tend to think of remembrance. That's how our memory works. That's never how the Bible uses it with reference to God. You can see why this would be the case. Is there ever anything that God could possibly forget? Some of you are thinking, yeah. Because he tells us he forgets our sins. He puts them away from us as far as the east is from the west. But the forgetfulness is actually a human metaphor. The forgetfulness is meant to say, no longer do I hold this in any way against you. It's expunged from the record. That's the point of it. Is it possible for something to be known that is knowledgeable that God doesn't retain? It's impossible. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. If you can imagine being not like me, which loses my wallet, my keys, my phone every day, multiple times. Christy Christy can give testimony to this. And she always knows where it's at. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It's marvelous, actually. God has all knowledge always present to him at all times. There's nothing he has to remember. He has the full realization of all knowledge at all times. He has the capacity and power to not have to move between that knowledge like you and I. We bring something to the forefront of our minds when we remember it. And that means when we remember something, you know what else happens? Something else goes back, like we we forget something. We can't keep it all right there. God is not like a man in that way. Everything that there is to know is always fully realized in the heart and the mind of God. So if that is true, what does it mean when he remembers? Well, when you begin to look through the scripture, you begin to realize every time that this idea of remembrance is applied to God, it has nothing to do with memory, but has to do with mercy, grace, and blessing. It means to say that God is actually moving towards you. He has remembered you in that he is acting 
towards you. Let me give you a couple of examples because there's over 70 examples in the Old Testament of God doing this. But let me just, let's stay in Genesis for a second. Genesis chapter 19, we read the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the second really greatest destruction that we see judgment in the book of Genesis. In verse 29, we're told in the very midst of that judgment that God remembered Abraham and thus saved Lot. Let me see, Maud, why you remembered Abraham, but he did something for Lot. Well, what did he remember? He remembered that Lot was Abraham's nephew and that he was going to be destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so in God's kindness, he drew Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah so he wouldn't be destroyed. That was memory of God. That was remembering. It's an action. It's, an, it's a blessing. It's an extension of mercy. Lot didn't deserve that. But the Lord in his kindness drew Lot out. Same thing happens in Genesis 29 to 30. You remember the story of Jacob. Poor Jacob. He's in love with Rachel. He goes to work for Laban. He works seven years for Laban. He can't wait to have the, the apple of his eye and be married to her. He gets married to her and on their wedding night takes off the veil and it's Leah, the older sister, not the younger one. That's a bummer. Like that's a, <laughs> it's a low moment. It's a very low moment. And so what does, he, what does he do? Well, he goes back and works seven more years for Laban in order to get Rachel. And then through Leah, God extends multiple children. She is very fruitful. Rachel, one that he's dearest to, doesn't have any children. She's barren, the scripture tells us. But in verse 22 of Genesis 30, here's what we read. God remembered Rachel and opened her womb and she conceived. You see the action? You see the grace? You see the blessing? So when you see God remembers someone in the scripture, it's speaking about the fact that he is moving towards them in blessing. In this passage, he's moving towards Noah and all of the animals of the ark. He says he remembers them all. And the whole passage is devoted to getting them safely to dry land for the recreation of the world. He's moving towards them for the accomplishing of this purpose. It's a beautiful picture of the fact that God, as he moves towards his people, as he promises us in Romans 8, 28 and 29... That he works all things together for the good of those who love him. To those who are called according to his purpose. Now imagine how important something like that, that promise would have been to Noah. At this juncture in the flood narrative, he's been in that boat for a year. It's smelly. They're running out of food. Things are getting tense in the family. This is a difficult moment. He's probably beginning to think that the, the ark is a death wish, not a redemption. And God remembers Noah. In the midst of the trial and the test, he begins to move Noah. He begins to guide Noah towards a blessing. And it's a great, great reminder that when we're in the midst of the darkest of our trials, even when things don't seem to be going well, it may be even a disciplinary action of the Lord that's taking place in our life, that when those hard things come, it is not necessarily an indicator that God is not with us or remembering us. But in fact, our trials 
in the midst of the challenges, even as Noah was experiencing, may very well be the evidence that God is indeed remembering us. We have a tendency, don't we? When we're going through a trial, God's forgotten me. He just seems so distant from me. He's not there. He's rejected me. You look at your Bible and you read through the saints of old and the saints who are in the new. What you see over and over and over again is that when God gets close to them, life doesn't necessarily get easier even if it gets better. Trials continue to come. Challenges continue to come. Difficulties continue to come. Wave upon wave keeps beating against the ark. But it's in the midst of that trial that actually the evidences of God's grace are being most displayed to you. Because isn't it in the midst of your trials where he's conforming you into the image of his son? Isn't it in the midst of the trials where he's accomplishing the greatest purposes that he has for your life? Isn't it in the midst of those weaknesses where he shows his greatest strength? Do you see his mission for you is so much greater than the one that we tend to think for ourselves. He's after something deeper. He's after something bigger. In fact, we should be concerned, friends, if we don't have any trials and difficulties. We might go so far as to say, woe to the person who's not under any trial. Who does not feel the disciplinary stroke of the Lord. Woe to the person. Because why? The New Testament tells us God disciplines those whom he loves. You see, when we read Jonah earlier, was, was God being mean to have him swallowed by a fish and spit up? on God's so mean. Was that mean? Not with the eyes of faith. He was saving Jonah. Jonah thought he was saving himself by not going on the mission that God had called him. God was saving Jonah by making him go on the mission. You see how completely different the eye of faith is from the eye of the world. And in many cases, this is the situation we find ourselves in in the world, consumed with the eye of the world rather than the eye of faith. God is teaching us right here that God remembers us even in the midst of the flood, even in the midst of the storm. There's a second thing, though, we see in this passage, and that is that God rescues and He recreates. He rescues and He recreates. In fact, when He remembers, He remembers in order to rescue and to recreate. We could connect them. When he remembers us, he's always remembering us to rescue us and to recreate us. I didn't say that was going to be necessarily easy or pleasant always, but it's going to be good and right. And over time, by his grace, he'll make us happy in that holiness that he's after for us. So let's look at how it is that God rescues and recreates here in the context of this passage. We'll stay there in verse 1 for just a second. Notice that immediately after he remembers Noah, we're told that the wind begins to blow over the earth. Verse 1. Now why is that important? Well, notice what the wind does. Verses 2 and 3. It closes the fountains of the deep. It closes the fountains of the deep. A description of the seas. Those that are below the, the deeps. It appears in the flood, in the mystery of the flood, that God opened up floodgates below. And water, if you can think of it as you've watched a YouTube video of a hurricane coming in and you see the water come up, that would have been the experience of the flood. Not just coming down, but coming up. The floodgates from below were left. But not just that. Notice, he also closed the windows of heaven. 
That's the rain coming from above. So the water's coming up, the water's coming down until the wind blows. When the wind blows, it brings a halt, a closing to the fountains of underneath and the windows to the heavens above. We might say that when the wind blows, the water judgment is quenched. We might go so far as to say when the wind blows, that's the salvation of Noah and his family. It is in that moment that it is made certain. Now, why am I camping out on on this wind? Well, because you're a very astute Bible reader. And you remember that just a few months ago, we were at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. And when you hear the language of wind, you know that that's tied in deeply to the creation story. As God is beginning to recreate the world here with Noah. Where do I say that? Genesis 1 verse 2. Right at the very beginning of the Bible. This is what we read. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Now let me just paint a picture for you. That face of the deep is this picture of seas. Primordial seas. In the Hebrew mindset and worldview. A sea was a picture of chaos. Unorganized. Unlivable. It's a place where you couldn't inhabit. It's a a picture of a waterly wilderness, if you will. Genesis 1 and 2, that's the picture. What's the picture of the flood? A return to that. Do You see, judgment has the effect of discipline and punishment for sin, but it also, on the world, has a decreating impact. Genesis 8 is taking us all the way back to Genesis 1-2 before God has even spoken anything into being. Can you imagine as Noah looked out from the ark and it was primordial sea. That's all it was. Now that was the picture of formlessness and void. That's what's happening in the context of of Genesis chapter 8. It's made perfectly plain when we get to the latter half of Genesis 1-2 where it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now that's exactly what we see here. The wind is coming down over the face of the waters. It's shutting off the waters and it's shutting off the windows into heaven. And you go, well, Nate, that's great. But that said spirit in Genesis 1-2 and it says wind in Genesis 8-3. Same word in the Hebrew. Same word. The word for spirit, ruach, in the Old Testament in the Hebrew is the same word for wind. God's sending himself. He's sending himself. He's accomplished his judgment, and he's now subsiding the water. He's bringing, once again, form and filling to the world. Some of you are thinking, man, he gets creative sometimes. Stay with me. Verse 4, waters continue to subside, and we read, notice, That in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now let's just pause for a second. You notice anything? Seventh month, seventeenth day of the month, the word rest. Remind you of anything? Maybe Genesis 2. Seventh day of creation, completeness. 
finished, coming back to a place of rest, a place of peace. We're going to get this symbol later. God has brought judgment to an end. He's beginning to recreate, repopulate the world. He's going to do it through Noah. Here he is giving us a picture of he's brought things from formlessness to void. And now he's beginning to form the world again. They saw the tops of the mountains, right? How does the scripture refer to creation? That the land came out of the waters. That's how it refers to it in Genesis. As he separated the expanses. He's recreating. He's giving the world back. He's reshaping it here in this passage. And he comes to the end. And, and, and the pilot, the, the captain, Noah himself comes and he makes land strike. And in the moment of land strike, rest. It rests on Ararat on the seventh month to the 17th day. And it's meant to clue you in that God is up to something really deep. The symbolism is everywhere in the midst of this passage. And so you go, wow, are you sure, Nate? Are you sure you know what you're talking about? Verses 6 through 14, stick with me. If he didn't want to drive it home, now he decides he's going to give us the symbol of birds. Do you remember the language of Genesis 1 to 2? The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water. What, what is that? It's metaphorical language for what a bird does. It's the idea of a bird that's fluttering, as it were, over its young. What does Noah do in this passage? He sends birds over the waters. That's what he does. It's a beautiful picture of the fact that we're going back to the themes of creation for inaugurating Something new, something amazing, something radical. A bird fluttering, as it were, over the waters. Looking for what? Looking for creation. Looking that the formlessness and void would disappear. Looking for a place to live. A place to inhabit. It's interesting in the context of, of this passage how he speaks to two different types of birds. They're unusual they're actually opposites. A, a raven is a large black bird. Many of you know it. You know it. You know, you think of, right, you think of Edgar Allan Poe's poem, right? There on the bust of Palis, uh, that black bird, that raven. Dark bird, symbol of, of death oftentimes in literature. It has a sturdy composition. It can fly long distances without having to, to, to have anything both to eat or to drop down and to rest. It's a great first choice if you're going to send a bird out of the ark and you don't know where the land is. It's also one of the most resourceful of all of the birds. It can eat just about anything. If you know much about a raven, one of the things you may know, biblically speaking, is an unclean animal. Later in the book of Leviticus, you'll, you see it mentioned. And in its mentioning, it's something that the people of Israel can't eat and they can't use as a sacrifice. Why? Because it eats dead things. It's a scavenger. It's a, it's a buzzard. It's a vulture. Why would have Moses sent out a raven then? Well, there was probably plenty... Food for a raven. It's a bit haunting. A raven would have found plenty to eat. Plenty dead. Plenty to consume as a scavenger. It says that he went to and fro. He was able to move between. 
sends him out several times until what? He doesn't come back at all. That's a good sign for Noah and his family because what it means is there's enough out there in which the raven can now live. But now he wants to send a different kind of bird, a dove. He's going to send a dove. Now, a dove, as you, you probably know, is a, a weaker composition of a bird, and one that gets tired very quickly, doesn't fly very far before it has to land somewhere. It's also <laughs> persnickety, um, likes clean areas. Give it, you know, berries and leaves and things such as that. No scavenger food. Doesn't eat any, any flesh. Well, what that means is that this bird is not going to be able to go as far. It's going to be weaker. It's going to need a cleaner place, someplace dry. It can't just land anywhere. It's going to be more persnickety to tell us if land is close. So he sends out the dove. The dove goes out, gets entirely exhausted, comes back. No place in which to land, sends the dove out again, and the dove comes back with hope. What's the dove come back with? A leaf. See, he's not a scavenger. He's got to have a got to have a a plant. And he comes back with a freshly plucked. That's what we're told in the text. Exact words. Freshly plucked. Wouldn't you're like, oh, it was left on the ground for the flood. Nope. New life. New life is happening on a land somewhere. Now, let me just remind you, what's the flow of creation? The flow of creation from formlessness and void, primordial sea, to land coming up out of the water, the expanses being separated, and then the plants are the next thing. It's a symbol. We're developing a new created order. We're coming back. The world is coming back. And he's telling us something even even by the very leaf itself, it's an olive leaf. An olive leaf all the way throughout Scripture is always a symbol of peace. What are they coming out of? Judgment. This is an incredibly hopeful moment for Noah and his wife, his sons and his sons' wives as they're thinking about a future. Not only is there new growth, but the new growth is a sign of peace. It's a, it's a place that may have even in some sense, had they had known it, they don't know it, but in some sense almost had that sense of aroma of Eden. A, a place of peacefulness, a place where things are right, where the world has been cleansed and expunged from sin and violence now. Olive trees are once again blooming. It's an incredible picture. And then he sends the dove out and the dove doesn't come back. And we can see that clearly we're getting really close to being able to get off this ark. Do you see what the Lord is doing in this passage? He's being so intentional. Taking you back to the beginning of creation. Showing you the work of the new creation, the recreation through, through Noah. And he tells you, I want you to know it's not just the world. It's not just the animals. But I'm doing this even with Noah himself. Listen to the language of verses 15 to 17. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Y'all remember hearing that any point in the past? Like maybe in Genesis 1? And that they may swarm upon the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. It ought to ring a bell. 
Noah and these animals, this, this little happy band coming off of the ark, is being pictured here as the center of the new creation. Noah as its second Adam. The same commands given to, to Adam are given, given now to Noah. He is going to be the progenitor. He's going to be the, the, the father, the ancestor of which this seed... Seeds. We've been talking about seeds. Seed of the serpent from Genesis chapter 3, which has, as you can see, been washed away with the flood. And now the seed, the godly seed, the seed of the woman, Noah and his family, going forth into creation. What hope this must have been. Finally, we can clean the house, and in the clean house, we can make everything right and keep it right this time around. That's the sense That's that expectation that's kind of teeming at this point in the midst of it. Now, we know better than that. It won't take us long to understand that Noah is not the guy. The Bible's going to tell us that in technicolor. I don't want to spoil it for you. We'll get there. But at this point in the telling of the story, this is what is sitting on the top of the text. This Adam, this second Adam has come to lead a new human race. I love the way Kent Hughes put it here. Adam stepping into a virgin world washed clean by judgment. Amidst now colorful birds once again filling the air. Great animals lumbering forth. Busy creatures scurrying about. Adam and his family stand in the sunlight of the new world. Can you imagine? You see God remembering Noah. You see God rescuing Noah. You see God using Noah in recreation. But you know what also you see from this text? You see that this text teaches us that from Noah and from the flood, God is telling the entire redemptive story. What do I mean? Do you see the flood story is not just a flood story. It's the Bible story. It's the whole of the Bible story. Where am I getting that? Well, I want you to think of the next major patriarch. The next major patriarch in Israel's history. You find him at the opening of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 2. His name is Moses. The people of Israel are in Egypt because one of Jacob's son, the one that came through Rachel, whom God remembered, named Joseph, leads the people of Israel into Egypt as they follow him during the midst of the famine. And they make really well there in Egypt. In fact, they get so big that Pharaoh feels threatened by them. And he begins to say, these people have been fruitful and multiply. Genesis 8. So well that we got to start doing away with them. So if any male child is born from the people of Israel, midwives, Egyptian midwives, throw them into the Nile. Think water judgment for just a minute. Throw them into the Nile and we'll weed them out. But God remembered Moses. We're told that this redeemer named Moses was born and that his mother places him in a basket of bulrushes with pitchumen. Sends him on. Gets caught in the reeds there in the Nile River. But Pharaoh's daughter hears him crying, goes to him, takes him out of the basket and goes and has him nursed and cared for within the throne right next to Pharaoh. Now, some of these pictures should kind of start coming to you. Water, basket, 
rescue. It's a mini Noah story. You go, Nate, come on. (laughs) It would be Nate, come on, until you learn that the Hebrew word for basket is ark. It's ark. That's the word of choice. Moses is extending the story. He's the next patriarch in the redemptive story. He's the one who's going to carry on the legacy of redeeming God's people. Well, where else do we see this? Well, we see it clearly. When he leads the people finally out of Egypt and behind them is the Egyptian army, quick on their heels, and before them is the Red Sea, more water issues. And Moses stands before them and at the command of God stretches out his hand And you know what we're told in Exodus 19? A wind blows and divides the water. I'm not making this stuff up. (laughs) And the people of God walk across on dry land. Sounds familiar. Which is why when you get to Matthew chapter 3... And you see the greater Noah and you see the greater Moses in the midst of water being baptized by John the Baptist. We're told that the heavens open up and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. All of the pictures that we saw in this passage, wind, birds, Everything relating to the flood is scattered throughout the redemptive moments in history to tell us something. To show us that God is leading us to that ultimate redemption. The redemption that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is the last anointed one. The one who will come to truly rescue us from the flood. The flood first of our sin. That in every way, as Psalm 69 tells us, should take us under. That we would be trapped as Jonah was in the bars of Sheol. That one has come to rescue us from that experience. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the power of Moses in the separating of those waters. He was the wind of Noah. And he is the Son of God, the fully and truly Son of Man, who has come to redeem his people from the greatest onslaught of the final judgment that will come in time to take for us our judgment on the cross. You see, what's remarkable is that this this Lord Jesus, who is... A greater Noah, who is a a greater Moses, didn't get it as good as they did. Noah made it safely to the other side in the passageway of the ark through the waters. The people of Israel and the leadership of Moses made it safely through the side on the passageway to the promised land. But Jesus, 
went under the flood. Jesus went under the flood. He didn't get rescued. He experienced the full weight of the crushing reality of sin on your behalf. He is Jonah, except he dies. And he must die because our holy God can't allow for the unholiness of sin to exist without meeting out justice. Someone has to stand as our representative, a true Adam, to pay the penalty for all it was that we have done wrong. And Jesus was that. That's what he did. He went under the waves of sin on the cross. Which is why when we profess, as we will do in a second go from the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into hell. I love the way John Owen puts it. He experienced the reality of hell on the cross. He went under the waves of the judgment of God. Do you see the only reason Noah makes it? The only reason that Moses and the people of God make it to the other side. The only reason you will ever make it is because he didn't. He went down for you so that you would rise across the passageway of death. That's the story of the Bible. When you begin to see the fact that Paul says of us in Colossians that we are hidden with Christ in God, he means to say that Jesus is, as it were, the ark that brings you across the judgment into the mountains, not of Ararat, but of Zion itself. That's what Jesus is doing. But the fact of the matter is, if Jesus stayed down there that whole time, we'd be in hot water. The grave couldn't hold him. The sea couldn't hold him. Because the justice of God demanded that he die as a representative for us. But the justice of God couldn't keep him there because he was perfect. So he must live. And so he's victorious over the grave. And the fact of the matter is right now he is living and breathing at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And we're told that he is making passage for you and me. He's our mediator. Between God and man. Friends, that's where we are this morning. As I look out at you and as you look at me. And as together we revel in these truths together. We have found a gospel in the midst of the flood of judgment. And that is why when I look at the flood. I see the most terrible and grotesque thing. And simultaneously, I see something so glorious and so gracious. And as soon as I see the cross, I see something so grotesque. And simultaneously, I see something so glorious because it's in those moments that the satisfaction of justice through death and the victory over sin and death come together for the saving and the giving of life to a people who don't deserve it like you and me. Friends, as we're in the presence of the Lord right now, I pray that something like the wind of the Spirit is blowing through your heart. And something like the vision of a dove is falling upon you through the Spirit of Christ. Something like the acknowledgement of the presence of who God is and what He's accomplishing is real to you. Because this story is still being told. And it's being told through you. 
And so whatever flood you're passing through, whatever howling of wind that you hear, know that the waves cannot destroy you and the wind cannot blow you away. But indeed, the waves are there to wash you and the wind is there to give you speed until you reach the Mount of Zion. Father in heaven, please come and let the reality of these truths register with us, your people. Help us to see them, believe them, and walk in them. And help us in all things to look to Jesus, our ark, and our Redeemer. We ask it in His holy name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.